This is a Saddleback Church podcast. David, Saul, Samson, Gideon, Ruth, Esther. These are just some of the many people whose stories have been told in Sunday schools and in sermons all around the world. And these stories all unfold in the historical books of the Bible. We've been in a series on navigating the Bible, looking at what you need to know to help you better read the different sections of the Bible. And today, my guest is Dr. Gary Snitker, a distinguished professor of Old Testament at Cairn University. And today we're talking about the historical books of the Bible. In this conversation, Gary and I talk about the cultural context of these historical books, the major themes, we take a specific look at King David, we talk about the parallels between the New Testament in these books, and much, much more. My name is Jason Whelan, and this is Doable Discipleship, a Saddleback Church podcast, part of the Saddleback family of podcasts. Now, my conversation with Dr. Gary Snicker. All right. Hey, Gary, thank you so much for being here today. Really, really appreciate your time and for joining us as we talk about the history books of the Bible. Well, thanks. Thanks, Jason. Uh, I'm happy to be with you. It's uh, good to do podcasts for a church. Yeah, awesome. And so I, so as we get started, I, I, I want to ask if you could kind of set the stage for us as we're talking about the historical books of the Old Testament. What can you tell us about what these books are, the kind of, you know, the authors, the time frame these books were written, basically any basic important information that you think would be helpful to give our listeners a kind of a frame for what we're talking about? Well, that's, that's the whole thing, right? So the historical narratives, um, they set the framework and really they continue the story that culminates in the teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. So it's the earlier part of that redemption story. So we we might refer to the Old Testament historical narratives as the Israel story. Mm. And the, the Israel story is the story that comes after the Torah story. So Torah begins the gospel with, in the beginning. And then at the end of Torah, the Israel story is what connects us to the gospel story. So the the Israel story, if we were to look in our Old Testaments uh, at, at a table of contents, I guess, the Israel story is made up of really two um, subsets of narratives. One subset is uh, the narrative of the rise and the fall of the Hebrew kingdoms. Mm. And that's uh, made up of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. So that's sort of one serial narrative it's one big story but it's in four books yeah. and then the uh, other set of narratives we might refer to them as the stories of exile and restoration and those are all one-off stories uh and the theme themes of those are uh exile and restoration and also most of them were written either in exile or restoration so just um an exa- the examples of those books, there's five of them, is Ruth, and thematically, that's about a family that went off into uh, Moab because of a, a famine, uh, economic depression, mm-hmm. and then they returned in restoration. It's also written at a much later time, so it's a very old story, even when it's first written. Uh, so it's an exile and restoration story in that sense of the word, too. Other exile stories are uh, the story of Daniel. Um, He's uh, a a Jewish young man who gets taken captive to serve in the royal court of the Babylonians, and he spends his life as a politician over in uh, the headquarters of the empire. Esther is another um, diaspora. Diaspora is the most Jews, when they were taken exile, 
They just stayed in the diaspora, the mm -hmm. places that they were forcibly relocated. 80% of Jews never returned to the land of promise mm. ever. Um, so even in the time of Christ, uh, even beyond up till our own day. So most Jews have remained in diaspora since they were forcibly taken out of their homeland in ancient times. Then the other two stories, one is known as Ezra and Nehemiah. Mm. That's really one story. So it's in the ancient world, um, scroll technology was a pain in the neck. So really <laughs> long books like first and second Samuel, that's one book. They were broken into two scrolls, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah. So those four books are each one story each, but for convenience in scroll technology, they were broken into two books. So Ezra and Nehemiah is really about the um, early returns to the land of Judah. And it started out well. Uh, they wanted to restore what God had promised of old, but it's really a, um, a tragic story. It's a story of the failure of the restoration. Mm. And the last one-off story is Chronicles. And that is a, uh, it's a, it's a retelling of the whole story. So of all <laughs> the other eight books that I just referred to Chronicles, the first word is Adam. Uh, yeah. It's the same Adam from Genesis. And it goes all the way through the, fall of the kingdom and the exile, and it ends with the Edict of Cyrus calling uh, all of God's people to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of Yahweh. So those nine books, uh, yeah, the two, two storylines, uh, and uh, the, the rise and the fall of the Hebrew kingdoms, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and the one-off stories of exile and restoration. So Ruth, Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah Chronicles. Those are the Old Testament historical narratives. Yeah, that's such great um, help to be able to kind of put those frameworks. So if you're thinking about the Old Testament, maybe you've read the Old Testament before, maybe you haven't. But if you if you picture kind of that middle kind of section of the Old Testament, that's kind of what we're talking about. So what can you tell us about the about what we know about the authors of these books? Well, I think... So far as I know, all of them are anonymous, so <laughs> there's not much to tell. Um, so we can tell when the earliest that most of them were dated. Yeah. But technically speaking, they're all anonymous. What, what we can say is the serial narrative of the rise and the fall of the Hebrew kingdoms, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. Those are written from a prophetic point of view, if you will. So we have collections of prophetic sermons in the Old Testament known as Isaiah, mm -hmm. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve Prophets. And those sermons collections by these prophets, these preachers, were they were preaching against the people of Israel and Judah who had rebelled against Torah, God's will, yeah. uh, given by Moses. And so the, the narrative books of the rise and the fall of the Hebrew kingdoms those take that same kind of perspective and they critique the kingdom from this perspective of the covenant of God's will in Torah. So if you compare this to say ancient Assyrian uh, royal inscriptions, those ancient Assyrian royal inscriptions never poke at the king. Mm. They never said that the king did anything wrong. Um, I, I suppose ancient scribes of Assyria would have lost their lives for such things. <laughs> Probably. So that's that's where the these Old Testament narrative books of the rise and the fall of the Hebrew kingdoms, they're prophetic in the sense that they're loyal opposition to the crown. Mm. So they're offering a critique from the perspective of God's will against the rebellion of the people and try, try to give the people faith if you will, or to understand who they are. Mm. Is the other one-off yeah. stories are all much later, right? They're all from exile and restoration. We don't know who they are. Mm -hmm. Maybe the one thing that your listeners might find interesting, uh, it, it seems like the book of Ruth is written by a woman, yeah. um, which is a little bit different. There's, in Hebrew, the word they, it's either feminine or masculine, mm -hmm. uh, grammatically. And so in the end of chapter one of Ruth, they, feminine, is referred to as the whole town of Bethlehem. Mm. Now, no ancient male would ever say that. <laughs> yeah. 
that the women are the whole town. Yeah. So it's very likely that the book of Ruth is written by a woman. Yeah, that context is is incredibly helpful. Just to, especially as we're talking about these two kind of separate elements, as we're talking about these historical narrative books and in what we're getting at with each one. So, what can you tell us about the cultural context of kind of that time frame? If we're talking about, you know, this Near East. Um, a time and culture, and we're talking about you know many 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 years playing out through these books. What's helpful to know for people maybe they've never read these sections before? Um, what are a couple elements that are helpful for, for people to know about the cultural context that they're reading? Well, there, there's a lot to it. So let me just maybe especially frame two places where we are. Great. Um, so one thing that I think us moderns aren't very good at is realizing that 100 years in the ancient world is just as long and just as complicated as 100 years today. <laughs> uh, and I think people don't get that because we often generalize yeah. about these tendencies in the ancient world. But the ancient world is... a um, ever-shifting sands. Uh, it's, a, it's a very complicated situation um, compared to uh, many of the things we deal with, especially religiously. Um, you know, uh, so as an example, if we could imagine an ancient person could look ahead and see the, you know, if we think about where we live, think about the last 1,000 years in the land where we live. Mm. And they were to, the ancient person were to just say, oh, all of that is just modern things. We'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> no, it's, it's way more complicated than that. You can't just lump it all together as modern the last thousand years. Yeah. A lot has happened. <laughs> and I think that the ancients would probably say the same thing to us. Um, I think another thing that um, dawned on me uh, many years ago, um, I had taken a trip to um, do some teaching in Africa, mm. in a very remote area. And it was, um, I just know that the people that were with me were worried because there was, um, uh, there wasn't good policing in this country. Sure. And so we had to be very careful. And so I remember um, the plane on the way home coming into Heathrow and as the plane was coming in, I was just thinking, uh, and I can't believe I thought this, but this is what I was thinking. <laughs> I was thinking, I am so relieved to be back, and I don't mind paying my taxes at all. Uh, I'm thinking that because I'm thinking, <laughs> I know that I live in a land where I, I pay taxes and I normally complain about them, but I dial 911. Yeah. There's going to be all sorts of people there taking care of business quickly. We have all sorts of first responders. And so being in a land where there's, where it's not like that, mm -hmm. ordinary folk are, are very vulnerable. So to put this into the context of, let's say the time frame of maybe the uh, book of judges or the book of Samuel, uh, the days before there was a king in Israel, we can be very judgmental as Bible readers because the people wanted a king. We say, why weren't they satisfied with Yahweh as their king? But, you know, none of us want to live in a land where there's predator nations all around us who continually to prey on us. Like, I have a family. You know, we have kids. We have, uh, we have things that we've saved. And so, would we really want to live in a situation where predator nations can just bully uh, people without a king? bully small villages and just take all their stuff. I mean, so I, I want to admit, and I, I, I'm embarrassed to say this because uh, I, I don't know your listeners, but <laughs> um, I'd, I'd want a king. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be like, no, I don't want a king. I, I like it the way <laughs> it is where people can just take my stuff. I, I'd want a king, even if it was taxes and if Samuel was complaining about all this stuff. Yeah. I'd want a king. I'd want an army. I'd want people to take care of us. I'd want, I'd want to be in a place where we're not just doing all this work for the predator nations. Mm. 
there's a million other things like that, but I think that us as moderns need to kind of think about walking in the shoes of the ancients. Yeah. Maybe one other one other point. Yeah, please. That um, is along these lines. You know, it's it's very easy for us to judge Israel for worshiping other gods, um, because you know when we look back, the dominant. Um, way of life across the entire Israel story, mm -hmm. uh, all the books of the narratives. The dominant is to worship the God of Israel, but also worship other gods. Yeah, and and we can say, well, what is this? Why aren't the people being faithful? But if we put ourselves in their perspective again, they're looking at this dramatic economic depression often, and so why wouldn't they? both worship the God of their ancestors and the God of the covenant, the God who redeemed their ancestors from Egypt, but also worship the fertility gods who provide wealth and security and help. And, and they'd be like, well, why wouldn't I do that? Why, why would I just ignore the gods who bring prosperity and peace? Yeah. So most of the, say, especially the Canaanite religions, those are fertility religions. They're about prosperity. They're about peace and safety. They're about having what one needs, yeah. you know, worshiping the rain god Baal or um, uh, the goddesses Ashura or Astarta. That's all about fertility. And so I think, you know, Paul says it with Timothy when they co-author Colossians that greed is idolatry. So it's sort of these things transition when we're talking about a later empire in New Testament times. Mm. But I think any of us in the modern world, Christians who are greedy and who maybe go to church on Sunday, but work for prosperity and serve greed other days, th this is not very different than what the ancient Israelites are doing. So I think that we need to be careful that we're not high and mighty and hypocritical as we judge the ancient Israelites for living very lives very similar to our own. Yeah, I think I, I'm, I'm so glad that you that you hit on this because I, I think you are, are so right that oftentimes we just are reading the Bible and we put it in our own context in, in, in the And I mean that in the way that we just envision our own world today as we know it. And we're just reading these and just it could call the police. The ambulance will show up. Yeah, ex exactly. Go so to the food store, man. And, and I'm, I'm so glad that you touched on too, this idea of, of change that constantly is happening and, and what we see happen because we're reading, especially in the, in the old Testament is you're reading these long stretches of time and you're reading these different reigns and empires and that take place over you know, many, 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 many years, this long period of time. But we just think of it all as, well, it's just the old Testament. It's this time frame, you know, whatnot. And, right. and so I'm the book so of Kings yeah. is it covers about 400 years. Exactly. So by the time it was first written, I mean, they're looking back 400 years. And that was just as long ago as 400 years ago was for us. Yeah. So if we're looking back <laughs> to the 1620s in our land, and we can go back just that far, right, in our Oof. in our land to the East Coast. I mean, that's that's what the Book of Kings is covering, a period of time like that, but even more complicated than the history of our land in the past 400 years. Yeah. Much more complicated. Yeah, I think, yeah. Having that context is so, so, so incredibly helpful. So so make sure as you are reading these books that you, that you, maybe stop yourself before you start reading and just say, okay, I'm entering into a different land in a different time. And these are, it, it, these are things that really happen. So it's not like you're reading a fantasy story, but you are putting yourself into an ancient history that with all of the complexities of, of that time. And, you know, our, our lives are, are, are complex in different ways, but their lives were just as complex, if not more so in many other ways. So many other ways. no cell phones, but <laughs> no cell phones, but changing empires in, in, in different lie in all these different in, in, in being in that, in that spot, especially in the middle East or the near East area, 
you're just surrounded by different cultures, by just, just dozens and dozens and dozens of different cultures. And as you said, being a predator state or a prey state where you have different, different people groups all around you that are constantly trying to take you over and you know whether it's enslave you or whatever it might be but you have these different kingdoms that are just constantly going after each other so you're also in this constant state of of knowing that you have this exile past and that you <laughs> may not know that you have exile in your future but you are also like you are just constantly wondering who's going to come at me next who's around you know and that's just got to so that just uh, impacts so much of just a culture a thinking and as you said you can easily understand why people wanted a king because they're like, I need some protection. Well, yeah, and, and that's just one moment. I mean, all I'm really calling for in those kind of moments is that we we try to think from the perspective of your ancient Israelite who lived within the Israel story because you know we're reading this put together by very faithful prophetic critics. Yeah. So a lot of times we take the perspective, and we should, of the faithful prophetic authors. Mm. But they are a minority position. Um, that is not the way the Israel story was lived by the average Israelite. Um, that, that's, that's a very small slice of a much, um, a, a much less faithful storyline yeah. that the ancient Israel lived in. You've talked about this already a little bit, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to spotlight this again. What, what would be some uh, uh, some themes as people are reading these historical narrative books for, for people to be on the lookout for, some major themes just to kind of have in your back pocket as you're reading through these books? Yeah, that's a, that's a really important one. So if we take the big story, uh, the serial of the rise and the fall of the Hebrew kingdoms, Joshua judges Samuel Kings. The point of that story is um, very narrow in one sense, is it's 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 responding to a crisis. Uh, specifically, when the people were taken into exile, they were shocked. They thought that this could never happen, uh, uh, and specifically, their their faith was shattered mm. because they believed that God had promised their ancestors, Abraham, that they would be in the land forever. Mm. That God had promised their ancestor, David, that his line would rule forever. So they knew things could get bad and they did get bad in the past, but always up until the point of being taken into exile forcibly, being taken captive. Before that, they thought it could never happen. Yeah. They believed. So reality suddenly, in, in the Babylonian work camps where they lived, reality seemed to contradict God's word. Reality seemed to contradict these forever covenants. And so there's a severe crisis. And so the, the big purpose of this story of the rise and the fall of the Hebrew kingdoms is to explain why exile had to happen. Yeah. Um, it was on the way before you people even set foot into the land of promise. Mm. And so the large burden of that story is to address this identity crisis that the people were having, this faith crisis, and show them why, no, no, read Torah. This isn't a surprise. <laughs> um, this is what the prophets have been saying that you haven't believed for all these years. So th this story really needed to be told to both explain why the people were captive, but also say, but God's not done yet. He's going to be faithful to his word. He meant what he said to Abraham. He meant what he said to David. And we need to understand how exile is not surprising him. Mm. His prophets have been talking about it a long time ago. Even Moses talked about this. Mm. So that's, I think, the major theme of that big story. The themes of the um, one-off stories, yeah. you know, we, we can take them one at a time, but sure. um, a, a book like Ruth for example, uh, the theme is that there is a place for outsiders, even the most outcast people from Moab, if they 
throw themselves upon Yahweh, even as the prophets say. He has room for them. And sure enough, Ruth turns out to be the matriarch yeah. of the Messiah, King David. Mm. Wow. I mean, so that whole story is shocking because when we go back to Torah, Deuteronomy 23 says, thou shalt never show um, kindness or offer peace to Ammonites and Moabites forever, as long as you live. Like, and it's written in the same kind of tone. That's um, Deuteronomy 23, 6. It's the same kind of tone as, thou shalt not murder, thou <laughs> shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not show goodness or offer peace to Ammonites and Moabites forever, as long as you live. Mm. And so, for Ruth to find uh, asylum and refuge in Judah, and more than that, to be assimilated into the tribe of Judah, and as it turns out, she didn't know this, but into the line yeah. of the chosen king of Israel, you know, that's a story that needs to be told. Mm. Um, Daniel's story, a little bit different, but of course, part of the book is written in Hebrew, part in Aramaic. Mm. The Aramaic part, uh, that's more to the nations, and it's exalting the Most High God. And the part written in Hebrew is offering... There is hope for Israel. So the Most High God, the God of all the nations, the God who raises up emperors and shuts them down, changes one empire to the next, he's the God of Israel, and he will be faithful to his word to his people. The Esther story can be kind of upsetting. Um, <laughs> we're not too good at reading that one because uh, it's, um, well, we... we it's not just that God's not mentioned in the book of Esther. I think mm. we all know that. But the protagonists of Esther, they're not um, covenantally faithful people. Mm. Uh, that is, they hide their identity on purpose. This is in Esther chapter 2. Uh, so they're not like Daniel. Yeah. Right? Everybody knows Daniel is a good Jew. Nobody even knows Esther is a Jew. She takes a new name, Esther, which is from the... Uh, uh, goddess Ishtar, the mm. goddess of love and war. And Mordecai takes the name Mordecai. We don't even know what his real name is. Yeah. After Marduk, the patron deity of Babylon. And so, you know, in all the other royal court stories, uh, the story of um, Joseph, yeah. or the story of Daniel, or the story of Ezra, or the story of Nehemiah, in all of those royal court stories, they shine a light on the God of Israel, and foreigners come to recognize and lift up the, the God of Israel. They pray. Uh, maybe uh, Daniel doesn't, but sorry, Daniel does pray. Yeah. I meant Joseph. Yeah. Had a little bit of a <laughs> mental block. But when a terrible crisis comes to Esther and Mordecai, they don't pray. Right? That's not how they handle things. Mm. So, this book is raising this kind of a question. Since there's no theology in it, it forces us to read the book against the other books of the Old Testament. It's DIY, do it yourself. Mm. And so, the clue for us is at the very end of the book that it's about the festival of Purim, how it got started. And Purim is the um, Akkadian word for pure, it's lots. And so, as the Proverbs say, you know, we cast the lots in the lap, but mm -hmm. uh, the decision is up to Yahweh. And so, that's what we need to ask when we ask the book, we read the book of Esther is, is it just coincidence? Or is God going to be faithful to his word, even for people that do not call upon him, even for people that are not faithful to the covenant? It's like yeah. the worst case scenario. Because <laughs> it's the opposite of Genesis, right? When every time Joseph has trouble, the author whispers, and the Lord was with Joseph. He got an air-conditioned cell <laughs> in the prison, all right, and so forth. Um, and then Ezra Nehemiah, um, it's, a, it's a very disappointing book because God is faithful to his word. He does bring them back. They do rebuild the temple. Mm -hmm. Again and again, they can see thing after thing that the Lord does. And again and again, the people from the leaders on down to the regular people 
they turn back to the ways of their ancestors who got kicked out of the land. Mm. And so the book ends with yet another rebellion. And Nehemiah is one of the one percenters. He's one of the most powerful people in the whole empire. He's a cupbearer of the emperor. And he's in charge of Jerusalem. And there he is in the very last chapter of Ezra Nehemiah. He's standing in Jerusalem with its walls, with its temple, with its Torah, with its Levites, with its priests, with all the things that God had been faithful to. And the people are in full rebellion. Mm -hmm. um, they're not honoring Sabbath. They're not honoring worship. They're marrying unbelievers again after a series of mass divorces. Yeah. Uh, that is what's going on in Jerusalem gets Nehemiah so angry that he he beats up a few of the men and yells at them. And like, that's there in the end of the book. And yeah. I know, not, not you, Jason, but <laughs> um, man, many Christian leaders would like to be in this place of authority to beat up the rebels in their church. <laughs> Again, maybe not in your situation, but Nehemiah does it. But we, we realize as readers that even for all of the zeal of Nehemiah, because he knows what's at stake, mm -hmm. for all of that, we know this keeps happening in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Yeah. These people are addicted to covenant breaking. If God's going to be faithful to his word, he's going to have to do it some other way. Mm -hmm. And right, this, this sets us up for the prophet that comes from Nazareth some years later. Mm -hmm. um, because we, we look at Ezra and Nehemiah, we say, why did God bring these people back? They didn't learn anything. They're exactly like their ancestors. It like, it's like exile never happened. And um, we can talk about Chronicles, um, uh, which is the last book. But just in short, one thing to look for there is kind of there's a convergence of, there's a retelling of the story, but the focus is very narrowly on David and the Davidic kings and worship. Yeah. So... Um, just one example, maybe for the time. It starts off with nine chapters of genealogies, which many people <laughs> that read through the Bible don't appreciate. But besides all the other theological things going on in these, these genealogies, and there's a lot, it's boring to read, but interesting to study. Mm. But the one thing that um, David Jansen observed that I think is just such a great observation, it's almost like a monument. Mm. That is, there's many famous people that we recognize from the rest of the Old Testament on these lists. But then there's lots of people we never heard of before. Yeah. But they're there listed. Amongst the ones that we know, yeah. And we realize that this is what the Chronicler is getting at. These people that have come back to Jerusalem to worship and are so discouraged, they need to know that it matters that they join with David. They join with Solomon, worship God in the very same place that they did. And that everyone matters, like all the people of God are just like the people on the list. The long dead are remembered because they're part of God's story. They're part of the Israel story. Mm. So I, I think that the chronicler goes a long way to encouraging his readership toward the kind of worship that they needed to do when the restoration had failed. I'm so glad that you brought up David towards the end, because I wanted to ask you specifically about, about him. Now, there are many great figures through these historical narrative books, right? You get Gideon and Samson, and you get, you get Nathan and Prophet, and you get Esther, as we talked about. But David takes kind of a spotlight place amongst these as you're reading through First and Second Samuel, First and Kings. So I wanted to, I wanted to ask you to just kind of, Set David up for us. What should people know about David to help them as they read through these books? Um, David, I mean, probably most of us know he's so famed still, and he should be. David is a man's man. David is a lady's man. <laughs> I mean, everyone tends to love David, except for Saul. Yeah. So, uh, besides him, uh, <laughs> who hates David with a vengeance, and Saul's a king during David's life, uh, David lives an extraordinary life. He's an extraordinarily passionate person. And so, I mean, you, you think about the kind of person, we don't often meet someone like David, who, right, as a, as a younger person, kills bear, kills lion, um, and he and his... Um, 
call them his friends for now. We can call them his mighty men. Um, to to gain Saul's trust right after David defeated the uh, champion from Gath, David and his friends murdered 200 Philistine men mm. um, because that was the bridal price for David to marry into Saul's family. Because Saul said, he thought this would be the end of David. You want to marry my daughter? Great. Bring me the foreskin yeah. of a hundred Philistines. And, you know, the Philistines are known as uncircumcised. That's what they're called because mm. it was one of the few cultures around Israel that actually did not practice circumcision. So it's it's not the sort of thing that David and his friends could go up to a Philistine man and say, hey, listen, can you do me a favor? I need to get something for my father-in-law. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not that sort of a thing. So he he had to kill and he didn't just do the 100, he brought back 200 mm -hmm. foreskins, which who knows why Saul wanted that. <laughs> but so David winds up marrying into Saul's family. And so you have Saul's daughter, Michael, loves David um, and protects him against Saul. Saul's son, Jonathan, who is also a um, tremendous warrior like David is, and they're very compatible. They're very good friends. Jonathan protects David against Saul as well. So, so David's an extraordinary person. And I think that, you know, even his close friends, he was being hunted as a fugitive, as you know, for mm -hmm. many years by Saul. And so they were hiding out in caves. And um, I don't know if you visited the caves there near mm -hmm. Getty or just, it's like catacombs. And mm -hmm. so David was in one of these caves with one of his men. And <laughs> Saul had to relieve himself. Yeah. And he just happened to relieve himself in the cave where David and a couple of his men were. The other men were hidden in other caves. And so I would have interpreted reality exactly the way David's associate did, said, the Lord has given Saul into your hands. This is not a coincidence. Mm. Let's kill him. And David, see, that's the thing about David. The one thing David wouldn't do, because he's a killer, uh, um, he threatens yeah. people like the mob. He does all sorts of things. But when it comes to his own advantage of becoming a ruler, he, he uses this phrase uh, that he's not going to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. And that's been a very misunderstood phrase because sometimes that's used in Christian circles in our modern day to, to say, be passive, let go and let God. Sure. Well, that's not what David's doing. He's not obeying the king. He has his own sort of nation, David, that's with him. He's living as a, a, a sort of a rebel ruler yeah. outside of Israel. But the one thing he won't do, he will not kill God's chosen Messiah over Israel just for his own self-aggrandizement. Mm. He forces God's hand. If you're going to make me king, God, you have to do it yourself. Even if you put Saul in this cave in a very vulnerable situation, I'm not going to kill him. And so I think that's where David is a, a just extraordinary. His son Absalom later rebels against David. Absalom's a, a, a beautiful man with long hair. And David warns all of his loyal troops who, who flee with him, don't harm Absalom. It's like, mm -hmm. Absalom is acting treasonously. He's yeah. sleeping with your concubines in broad daylight. He, he wants to kill you. He's going to kill you. He's driven you out of your own kingdom. But David mourns for Absalom. Um, uh, it's a very powerful passage if any of your um, constituents yeah. want to read it. It's in 2 Samuel 18 and 19. But mm. when Absalom dies, you know, everybody's happy except David. Yeah. David just is pictured there crying out, my son, my son, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, my son. And he goes on and on. And, you know, it's just... It's this exceptionally powerful moment. And I think we, we as readers, you know, we, we say, wow, you know, what kind of a person lives this way? This is very extraordinary. So mm -hmm. I, I think you're right, Jason. Um, David is a very extraordinary person. And so even to 
you know, this book about him, the book of Samuel's about David. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a very powerful story to read even today. I mean, there's, there's really no one like him. And I think that for all of his complicated and contradictory and flawed ways, and there's something really attractive about him. And I think the, the reason maybe that the Lord holds him up as a model is because he is someone who repents. Mm. So in spite of his great sins, uh, you know, capital sins on a regular basis, he, he is somebody who really repents and has a heart for God. And so this, um, I think then he becomes, it's, it's natural in many ways that much of the Old Testament runs toward David. Yeah. And so this is what's important maybe is you would think about the Messiah in the New Testament. The son of David, Jesus the Messiah as the son of David, it's incredibly important because since most of the Old Testament is running towards David already, to have Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, be presenting, be presented as the son of David, Yeah, the Old Testament's already moving that direction. So he, he really connects with the Old Testament in a very central way there. And especially his, right, the irony of being willing to die for the crime of being king of the Jews. I mean, the, the profound irony there is, um, you know, nobody can out David David except for the <laughs> son of David. The son of David out David's David. I mean, that's that's what happens at the cross. Yeah, I think it helps to see it helps to see that parallel as as we know the New Testament and have read it is you see all of these allusions all of these parallels back to David from the Old Testament and so to see these kind of linchpin people who so much of the story of of uh, of God's people is is laid out in in these in these people is incredibly helpful and david is one of those right you see moses from the torah you see david from pretty much the rest of the of the old testament he's kind of this focal figure and even even in the books beyond david there's a lot of pointing back to david there's a lot of allusion and reference to david and we see that continue in the new testament as well so as you're reading through this section of the bible spend a little bit extra time on these stories of david and and just think about what it was, as you said, it, it, God calls him a man after his own heart. And I love how you brought up his repentance as a part of that. I think another part of that is his his ability to connect with his own emotions and just be, be an emotional person, which we, you know, we don't think as much about as you see this wide array of David being having having pride and bravado as you said he he's a man's man but he's also can you know can weep openly and just exhibit this you know this crying he, out he plays a harp and writes poetry exactly and he plays a I harp mean, and writes poetry <laughs> we still read his poetry today we play yes. it i mean so you know what kind of murderous person um very tough man. Yeah. Plays a harp and reads poetry, writes poetry. I mean, it, just beautiful um, poetry as well. I mean, it just has captured um, our prayer life yeah. across the ages. It's a gift from the Lord. It is. It 100% is. So I'm so glad that we got to spend some time in this conversation to focus in on David. I wanted to give you the chance as we wrap up here. I wanted to, you, know, you are a, a scholar of the Old Testament, you spent considerable time and energy as you talk, as you think through the Old Testament and in this conversation, speaking specifically around these books. So what is maybe one thing that you have learned in all of your time studying about this that you think everybody should know before they begin reading these books? <laughs> I, I don't know about that. <laughs> um, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't think you need to know anything, just read them. But I, I, I think to, answer your question though sort of yeah, spin of it however you want <laughs> when this is in luke chapter 4 jesus is in his hometown and he he reads from the isaiah scroll yeah and he really upsets people that day but what upsets them more because they're just kind of snarky and sarcastic when he reads isaiah and makes some bold claims about it 
But then he 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 looks back at a couple of these very minor stories in the book of Kings. Mm. Uh, he he refers to, you know, um, a foreigner with a skin disease. He refers to a, a foreigner who is poor and a widow. Mm. And that the way that the Lord provided for these foreigners. And so, you know, when we go back to the book of Kings again, we talked about how it was 400 years of time. Well, most of the book of Kings, because it's two kingdoms, two Hebrew kingdoms, Mm. most of it is about the kingdom in the north and the kingdom in the south, and they're sort of interweaved the way you would interlock our fingers together, right? Just back and forth. But in the midst of that, uh, in between all of those dated stories about the political rulers in the north and the political rulers in the south and wars and temples and all these important things, in between all that, there's these very colorful prophetic stories of these northern prophets. Mm. The most famous ones, we remember their names, Elijah and Elisha, mm. but there's several others as well. These are undated stories that are kind of weaved into the mix. And those stories are extraordinary because they're about very daily things. They're just ordinary people. Somebody has a fertility issue. Some guy lost his tool and needed help finding it in the river. Um, Some youths mocked the bald prophet, Mm -hmm. and so some she-bears mauled them. These are just everyday stories. A, a, A widow and her son don't have enough food. But those stories are the ones that Jesus goes back to when he's in the synagogue of Nazareth. Mm. And I think we don't realize that those stories tell us something important. Yes, God has important things to handle with the kingdom in the north and the kingdom in the south and all of their rivalries. But God doesn't stop being the God to the ordinary outcast person. Those stories show us that God cares about the daily lives of ordinary people, even with all the other things that are going on. Yeah. And when Christ brings up those foreigners that find God's grace, that's what gets everyone in Nazareth so angry that they want to kill Jesus. And so they, of course, don't kill Jesus. That's what the story is. But they take him to the cliff there at the edge of Nazareth, and he just walks away. And if you've ever stood there um, at the at the ridge of Nazareth uh-huh. and look out. It's a very extraordinary because you can see Mount Tabor to the left where Barak and Deborah uh, fought against the um, Canaanites. Mm-hmm. You can see across the way, all the way on the other side where Gideon had his men um, drinking water. And you can see many other things that happened to Saul and other prophets, Elijah and Elisha. I mean, just a very extraordinary moment. So, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, just like the people that wanted to kill him. They lived in a land where many of these biblical events took place. And and Jesus really, I guess, saw how God was a God, even for the outcast, even for the foreigner, even for something that was not important, though he is, of course, the Messiah the long-promised son of David. So I think Jesus shows us something of the sensitivity in how to read his Bible. Mm. And I would think that, really, I think we're not being honest with ourselves if we think we can understand Jesus and his followers if we don't read his Bible the way Jesus read his Bible. Mm. And so I, I would hope that, you know, all of us will be motivated to study this story, which shapes the identity of the Messiah. Yeah. And we call ourselves Christians, Christ followers. I mean, this is, this is our story. This is about the person that we follow yeah. and believe in. And um, I think we need to read the narratives the way he did. I love it. Thank you so much for that encouragement. At the, it, it, 
read your narratives. Jesus read the narratives. So, it, so, so it, it just goes to show you should read them too. <laughs> I love, I love ending with that. Gary, thank you so much for helping us navigate these books, these two different sections that we talked about and you kind of, you know, and then this middle little chunk of the Old Testament that can often kind of get passed over. So I'm so glad that we got to talk through it. And for our listeners, I, I have no doubt that this helped them to enter into this world and that they can start reading it or maybe go back and reread these books with some fresh way of, of thinking about them. So thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Jason, thank you for having me. It was a, it's been a pleasure to be with you and to talk about these things. Now let's look at some next steps from this episode. First, obviously the first step <laughs> is reading the historical books of the Bible. Now, all of these books are great, <laughs> clearly, but if you just want something specific to read, I'd suggest reading First and Second Samuel. They are two of my favorite books of the Bible. And they start with one of my favorite stories of the Bible. So, uh, I would, if you haven't read those, I recommend going and picking those up. Uh, second next step. Dr. Snickers has two books that he's written that I wanted to highlight. A uh, first is called Old Testament narrative books, the Israel story. And then the second book is Old Testament use of Old Testament. I've put links to both of these books in the show notes. So if you're interested in going deeper in everything that we talked about in this conversation, if you're interested in really following this Israel story that we talked about, and we're interested in, in looking about at how the Old Testament talks about the Old Testament, <laughs> then I highly recommend you check out these books. Third, if you haven't yet, go back and listen to the other episodes in this series on navigating the Bible. We're covering all of the major sections of the Bible, talking and having conversations just like this one. So friends, I want to thank my guest today, Dr. Gary Schnicker, and we will be back with you with another episode of Doable Discipleship next week. If you enjoyed this episode, consider giving us a rating or a review on iTunes. If you do, you'll help other people find us in the future. You can also listen to these episodes on YouTube. Just subscribe to the Saddleback Church YouTube channel for these conversations, plus lots of other video content. And if you are already listening to us on YouTube, subscribe to the Doable Discipleship Podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app so you can listen in the car or wherever else you go. Don't forget to visit saddleback.com slash doable to check out all of our previous episodes and go to saddleback.com slash grow to find spiritual growth resources and view a calendar of upcoming events. Lastly, you can always get in touch with us by emailing maturity at saddleback.com. Send us your thoughts, send us your questions, your Bible questions, your life questions, whatever. Who knows? Your question might just inspire an upcoming episode. Thanks again for tuning in to Doable Discipleship. I'm Jason Whelan, and I hope you'll join us again next week.